from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. One of the biggest lessons I learned from Hillary's time working with the Yale Child Study Center is that most children, even in the hardest circumstances, will make it if they have just one person who makes them feel like the most important person in the world. I was very fortunate growing up because I had three, my mother and my maternal grandparents, who took care of me while my mother was away training to be a nurse anesthetist so she could give me a better life. Between the three of them, I learned a lot about life, family, and human nature. But most of all, I knew I was loved. So why am I telling you this? Because a parent or a caregiver's unconditional love is one of the greatest gifts any of us can receive. That's something that has only become clearer to me as I've done this podcast and heard the extraordinary effect that my guests, parents, and other caregivers have had on their lives. With Mother's Day around the corner and Father's Day coming up next month, I wanted to put together some of the most inspiring stories our guests have shared about their parents. I hope you enjoy hearing them as much as I did. Today, I'm honored to be joined by the youngest of those four children, Dr. King dreamed of in his most famous speech. She has spent a lifetime in pursuit of racial, social, and economic justice. From the pulpit and from her perch as CEO of the King Center for Nonviolent Social Change. Dr. Bernice King, thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you, President Clinton. I'm always honored to be in your presence and uh, even more honored to have this conversation with you today. Well, you know, we've known each other for a long time now, and uh, I've always wondered how you came to be who you were. You could have been forgiven if you'd taken a whole pass on all this business. If your memories of standing in the pulpit and standing on the forefront of social change and the sacrifices inherent in being a member of your family had been so burdensome, you could have walked away and been a perfectly fine, perfectly successful something else. But you didn't. And I'd like to know what you think your childhood had to do with it. And when did you realize the meaning of your father, later your mother's work, and how did you come to do the same thing? The person I believe who's singularly most uh, impactful, influential in my life was my mom. Uh, she was an extraordinary example of what it means to sacrifice and serve humanity. And to do it in a way, from a place, should I say, of continual forgiveness, you know. Uh, we grew up in a household where my mother taught us early on uh, about not hating, and particularly in, in our instance, not hating the person who killed our father. Um, and would always invoke my father's words, um, somebody has to cut off the chain of violence. Now, as a kid, you know, I, I took those words very objectively that somebody, she was talking about somebody, but it wasn't me. <laughs> uh, and and uh, so as, as, I, as, I, as I continued to, to grow and, and develop, I came to the, the understanding because I was surrounded by uh, all of the work that she did to build the King Center into the Martin Luther King Center for Nonviolent Social Change um, and exposed early on to some of the nonviolent teachings. Um, I began to understand that I was being drawn into this, although I was very resistant because of the emotional trauma that I suffered from my father's assassination at the age of five, my uncle being mysteriously found in his pool with a ward in his lungs. I was six. My grandmother being shot in church when I was 11 years of age. Um, you know, trying to manage all of the barrage of emotions that I was experiencing as a result of those tragedies was, was very difficult. And it land, landed me for a season in a place of, of a lot of hate, uh, hostility, and anger. So from the point of my mother saying as a child, somebody has to cut off the chain of violence, I got all this anger inside. And typically anger, when it erupts, it, it just, it, it, it has no sense about it. So it will target any and everything and hurt, and hurt people. Um, and I had to figure this out. And so I could hear, you got to cut off the chain. You don't want to be someone who ends up letting that anger cause you to continue to do violence. Because I was very violent with my tongue. It wasn't until I became... CEO of the King Center, that my life began to really come in focus. Because before then, you know, when my mom was around, she was the face of the legacy. You know, I obviously 
went out speaking a lot concerning my, my father's legacy. You know, I was committed to it, but I was always wrestling with where do I fit? What do I do? How do I distinguish myself? You know, what is my purpose? What is my call? What can I do that is not always about King? And then it dawned on me, wow, daddy's teachings really come out of the word of God for him. So there was not any inconsistency anymore for me. I was able to reconcile, you know, that this work is is really about advancing God's kingdom. It's about building a just, humane, equitable, and peaceful world. I now understand the power of nonviolence to really transform you first uh, and then to pour out into the rest of the world to change the world and to be that vessel, as my mother said, to cut off the chain of violence. Uh, but thank God for her, because I saw her over and over again. There were things where people hurt her, but she still extended herself in grace and love toward those people and always wanted the best for other people. If there's no better art form to explain these times than jazz, then I'm very lucky to have with me today one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time, my longtime friend, Wenton Marsalis. From the first time I ever heard about you or listened to your brother Brantford play, or, I've always been fascinated by your family story and the role your father played. And the letter you wrote in tribute to him was one of the most moving things I think I ever read and all the more powerful for saying that your hurt was no more valid or stronger than that of so many others who lost people, which I think your dad also said not long before he died. Right. And yeah, that so was his thing. Tell us about him and what impact he had on your growing up and on your life and what impact his loss has had on what you do now. I mean, he was my man. You know, I went from the time I was born, it's like I hung with him. And it was not glamorous. Like he was just, he was a guy. My father was not a, 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 a physical guy, heroic, wanting to whatever, strike, want to strike people or be, uh, he was a very philosophical person who, who, when he was growing up, he told me he had gotten bullied by people because that wasn't his personality. And I learned more about what it meant to be a human being just watching him. He talked to everybody the same. If he had the chance to meet you, he would be honored. He would be just as respectful as he would with a homeless person in the street. He would talk to homeless cats and come back, man, you, this cat had an interesting story. You see, he used to be an architect. <laughs> he could go into a whole thing that he had talked about. And I saw my father play in empty clubs for, for the, the, the 17 years I lived with him. I saw him be in situations that would humiliate any person. <laughs> he handled it all with grace and sophistication. He studied, he practiced, he taught. He was a person of the community. He played for no people. He played just as hard to an empty room as he would play for people. I always tell the one story. I never really liked jazz growing up. I was just always, I liked to be in clubs and hear older people down on their luck, hear the stuff they talked about, all the kind of nasty talk and things that went on. So I always loved being in that environment. And I was fortunate to be in the environment because I was with him. I knew how to be quiet, how to just be in my space, but I, I loved it. I did not like the music that much. When I started to get into the music, I was 11 or going into being 12. And he played in a club called Lou and Charlie's and it was late at night. He closed the club up. There was nobody in this club but one man who was drunk. 
And I went to my father and I said, man, let's go. You know, it's two o'clock. It's only me and you. Let, let's let, look, this guy here, he was drunk. And my, we looked out into the club, empty club, nobody in it. My father playing the piano. <laughs> my father looks at me and he, he says, man, this gig ends at 2.30. 2.30, man. Let's get this guy out of here and close up. Charlie's the old club owner. Charlie is, is, is gone. Let's, let's go home. We had a 30-minute drive home. My daddy told me, man, sit your ass down and listen to some music for a change. <laughs> so... <laughs> It actually was it was actually funny because it's only me and him. So I actually sat down and for all the years of being in a club, then I guess since I was two years old, I've been in clubs. It's the first time I really just really listened to him playing. Now, of course, I grew up hearing him practice. So his sound was a part of my life. But I looked around that club and I thought, what makes a person do what this man is doing? Playing for no people. At two in the morning. And, uh, you know, that, that shaped my life. Like just, uh, the integrity he showed and he played a pile of piano in that 30 minutes. And then I said to myself, I wonder if I could learn how to play like him. Cause I mainly teased him a lot. Cause he was such a serious man. I was always joking with him. Even the last conversation I had with him before he, before he went to the hospital and then he, he died a few days after that, uh, I was teasing and messing with him. And always kind of joking, joking with him that I could play better than him. Piano. I played my piano and play some runs, I, you know. So I'm playing some chords like him. This is his favorite chord. He would play this big 6-9 chord. So he would, he'd always play. And he'd go. He always played those kind of little phrases. I would start playing them and say, man, you better look out. I'm coming for you. So, uh. Yeah, I remember, I remember that night and so many other things. My daddy was so fair with people and he had such integrity uh, about things. You couldn't buy him out. He didn't, I remember when I made a little money, I was 21 or 22. I said, man, let me get you a house. He said, man, you, you're an athlete. I don't need you to get me a house. I'm comfortable in my own house. <laughs> you know, so he, he was just philosophically, if you, were, if you acted small or you did something that was small, he would call you on it. He hated for you to call people them. He said, who is they, man? Who is they? That's why I wrote a movement in the Ever Funky Lowdown called They. Yep. Because he tell me who they are. Do you know them? What's their name? And so many other things I, I could tell you. I mean, I just he was he was such a uh, he was such a, a, a big person. I remember once, I'm just tell you this one last story to just about who he was. When I first came to New York, I started to get a lot of publicity and I talked a lot. So the older musicians really didn't like me. And I was always talking about the integrity of music and all these things that were far beyond what my playing earned me the right to talk about. From a philosophical standpoint, uh, what I was saying was not inaccurate, but I shouldn't have been saying it, you know? And I went back to New Orleans to play a gig and my father always let me sit in with him. And in this gig, uh, he, did, he didn't call me up on the bandstand. So the whole time I was standing there, man, I was, I was getting, I said, he's just like these other musicians in New York. Then finally, on the last tune, he brought me up on the bandstand. I was dealing with all kind of emotion and angry at him that he was mad because I had become successful. And uh, so I played. And as we were walking off the bandstand, thinking all the stuff I was thinking, my father put his arm around me and he said, man, I'm sorry about my rhythm section. I really didn't want to call you up at all. <laughs> so... <laughs> I started laughing. I told him, I said, man, I was thinking so many small thoughts. And he just looked at me and shook his head. <laughs> he said, boy, this cat. So, you know, he was, 
Yeah, he was a, he was a, he was a good person. I mean, he had a good heart and a good good feeling to him. Thank you, Wenton. I met Magic Johnson when I ran for president in 1992. And shortly after, he'd been diagnosed with HIV and retired from the NBA. From the time I first met him, I've been more impressed by who he is as a person than anything he'd done on the basketball court. He's built an amazing career in business and taken special pride in shattering the myth that businesses can't thrive in underserved urban communities. Thanks for being here, Magic. Tell us a little bit about growing up, how you got into basketball, and how you decided you wanted to stay and play for Michigan State. Well, I grew up with six sisters and three brothers, so a big family. My father worked for General Motors for 30 years and won an award for never being late and never missing a day in 30 years. Wow. Yeah, so you see where I got my work ethic from. <laughs> And so I, I'm just I'm built just like my father. I'm a worker. And so my mother worked for the school district in the school cafeteria. The one thing they stressed was education. Uh, they let me know early on. Yes, we were happy that you play basketball. But if you don't get good grades, you won't be playing at all. So <laughs> that kept me in the books. President Clinton, you'd be happy to know that all my sisters our teachers in the school system, and so they uh, teach young people today in Lansing, Michigan. I'm really proud of all of them. And then I fell in love with the game, watching basketball every Saturday, every Sunday with my father. He would sit on the floor, so I would sit sit right next to him, and I would watch college basketball on Saturday, and then on Sunday they made sure that we went to church as a family. And then every Sunday, no matter what was going on, I don't care how many games I had, we had to have dinner on Sunday as a family. Everybody had to be there. There's no excuses. Uh, That's why I'm a family guy today, you know. But I fell in love with the game just watching with my father. And then every time I would watch an NBA game, and at that time, Bob Cousy, uh, Bill Russell of the Celtics, John Havitek of the Celtics, Oscar Robinson. Uh, then, of course, when Kareem was Lou Alcindor with the Milwaukee Bucks, I would go out and I would emulate what they were doing on TV. <laughs> so I would practice all their moves. Uh, and I played basketball all the time, President Clint. I mean, it wasn't a day that I didn't play basketball. I used to shovel the snow off the ground and I would play basketball. And my mom was like, <laughs> she said, that boy just loved to play basketball. And it was, and this funny thing was, in the summertime, my father also had a trash hauling service because so many mouths to feed, he had to take on a second job. And so every day in the summertime, Monday through Saturday, I would work on the truck with my father picking up people's trash. But I would say this, President Clinton, this is the greatest moment of my life, what happened to me, and this thing changed my life. So during the school year, I would get on my father's truck on Saturdays only. And so it was, it must have been seven below zero. And my job was to get all the loose trash around the barrels and put it on the truck. It was so cold that morning. 
that I got half the trash and I jumped into the cabin of the truck and you appreciate this. By the time I closed the door, my father had opened the door and grabbed me and took me back to the ice where, where the trash was stuck in. And he said, Irvin, if you do this job halfway, you'll do everything in your life halfway. You'll practice basketball halfway. You will study half the time. I want you to go get the shovel and break up the ice and get that trash out of there and put it on the truck. And at that moment in time, I became a perfectionist. And everything I was doing in my life, I, I had to do it right because my father taught me that lesson early on. That's why I am the man that I am today. I have my mother's smile <laughs> <laughs> and her personality and want to help everybody. And I'm just like my father. I'm a worker. I, I, I get a great joy out of, out of working, and it's because of him. We'll be right back. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now wherever you're listening. 
I'm grateful to be joined by one of our nation's most effective advocates for free and fair elections, because she's provided an incredible blueprint for achieving real, meaningful change. No matter what you're setting out to do, you need a clear vision, a realistic plan to get there, the fortitude to stick with it, and the flexibility to adapt to changing circumstances. Stacey Abrams has done that as well as anybody I have ever seen. Stacy, thank you for joining us today. And I, I think you should take a, just a couple of moments and tell the people who are with us today how you got interested in this work and what you would say to young people about whether it's worth the time and effort and blood, sweat and tears you put into it. Well, Mr. President, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. Like you, I am a child of the South. I, I was technically born in Wisconsin, but I grew up in Mississippi. And my parents were both civil rights activists when they were teenagers. So by the time I came along, I was part of a whole history of people who'd been fighting for the right to vote, the right to have access to democracy. And as you know, Jim Crow, the system in the South that denied access to the right to vote to black Americans existed from the end of slavery, basically through 1965. And so my parents were teenagers in 65. My dad was actually arrested helping register black people to vote. We tease him that my mom was doing the same work. She was just smart enough not to get caught. <laughs> but I came of age knowing that the right to vote wasn't just about casting a ballot. It was the only way to tackle the poverty we lived in. My parents both worked full time and still we barely made ends meet. Uh, we were what they called working poor. And so my parents took us with them to volunteer because they wanted us to work our hands to make people's lives better. But they also took us with them to vote because they said, individually, we can make a little bit of change, but when we vote, we make collective change. Society changes when you vote. I'm very lucky to be joined now by someone who's one of the most acclaimed storytellers working in music today. Not just because of what he has to say, but because of his ability to hear what others have to say as well. Raised in rural Alabama by an extended family who loved playing music together, Jason Isbell is a four-time Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter and guitarist. His work spans rock, folk, Americana, and country genres. He's also an outspoken advocate for progressive causes and a voice for fairness, equality, and sensible public health measures in the music industry, and all across our society. One of the reasons that I was so interested in talking to you is that I identified with so much of your childhood and how it led you to your calling. So let's start by telling us a little about where and how you grew up and how that led you into both playing music and writing songs. Yeah, you know, I grew up in Green Hill, Alabama, which is uh, uh, northwestern Alabama, right up in the corner by Mississippi and Tennessee, and um, my grandfather on my dad's side was a Pentecostal preacher and um, a musician by hobby, not by trade. He he painted houses by trade, but uh, he and my dad and, and my uncle had a house painting company together, and so they all worked together. And then uh, my parents were really young when I was born. My dad was 19. My mom was 17. And the only, you know, they were both working throughout my childhood. So the only place that I really went uh, for child care was to my grandparents' house. And my grandfather, you know, he wouldn't watch a lot of TV. He would watch old westerns. 
and uh, he liked watching baseball. But outside of that, you know, nothing really. But, uh, you know, we watched baseball games together and uh, old westerns, and we played music together. And most of my time with them was spent playing rhythm guitar while my grandfather played what he referred to as a lead instrument, like banjo or uh, mandolin or fiddle. I was born in a tiny southern town I grew up with all my family around We made music on the porch on Sunday nights Old men with old guitars smoking Winston lights He would show me these three chord gospel songs and old country and western songs and uh if I would accompany him for a couple of hours playing rhythm guitar on the big, huge, flat-top acoustic when I was, you know, too small to really reach my arms around it, then he would reward me by playing the blues. So he would tune his guitar to an open tuning and play slide guitar. I hope you find something to love, something to do when you feel like giving up a song to sing. And this happened hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times when I was a kid. Every day, you know, I would go over there uh, in the summer all day, and after school I would walk across the the track field to their house because they lived behind the school, and I would just stay with them and we would play music. And, uh, you know, I think it was his way of, of... spending time with me and connecting with me and also just keeping me busy and giving me something to do where I wouldn't get myself in trouble. Turned out to be pretty effective childcare, didn't it? Uh, Yeah, I got really lucky. I got really, really lucky because, you know, music was introduced to me as a way to uh, communicate with the people that I cared about. And the first songs that I heard were songs that had been around for a long, long time. I mean, this was in the 80s, you know. It wasn't in the, the 1940s or 50s, but the songs that I was hearing were already uh, tried and true, and they stuck with me. And the way those songs were written and the way those stories were told, uh, you know, it influenced the kind of music that I wound up making as an adult. And, and all the things that are important to me, Uh, now really came out of that time that I spent with my family making music. He's a 10-time All-Star, three-time World Series champion, seven-time Silver Slugger, soon-to-be Baseball Hall of Famer, and a hero to fans young and old from New England to the Dominican Republic, David Ortiz. During his 14 years with the Boston Red Sox, David helped lead the team to three championships, including ending the infamous 86-year curse, the so-called Curse of the Bambino, in 2004. He also set and still holds the team record for most home runs in a single season with 54 and is widely considered one of the greatest designated hitters in the history of the game. He's also always been focused on giving back off the field, particularly through the David Ortiz Children's Fund which provides critical cardiac services to children in need. David, thanks for being here today. Did you think a lot when you played that you were basically walking in the steps of Juan Marshall, Sammy Sosa, the great Dominican players before? Did 
were you aware that you were carrying this heritage forward? Reality is, Mr. President, that uh, I uh, I was a kid that all I have in mind when I first jumped into the pro was finding the way to help my family. We were a poor family coming from the Dominican. My mom and dad used to work extremely hard to pay for the school, to pay for food. We didn't have any extra things because we can't afford it. And um, my childhood was really good because it was full of love and respect, but nothing else. We don't have any financial statement. It was the type of living that it was in a day by day type of thing. And it was basically, you know, a surviving type of thing. And but my my mom and dad, they hold on tight. They protect uh, their kids. They always try their best to take care of us the way they can. At the time, when I was like 16, 17, with all the pressure that I was living into it, I know exactly what I need to be and what I want to be. I just don't know what it was going to take me to get there. But I know my mind has very clear the things that I need to do to put my family in a situation because I was their only way out. I was their only way out. It was not all the way out, but me. So I know that I had that responsibility. And I start, you know, working on trying to learn what it takes to be one of those guys that you just mentioned. Well, I'm very moved by what you said about your mother. And I know uh, you lost her about 20 years ago, I think, this year in a yes. car accident. Yes. And you were paying tribute to her after every home run you hit. Yes. I remember when I lost my mom, I was playing for the Twins. And it was after New Year's Day, my mom used to go to visit her family, you know, New Year, you know. And that one time it was like basically saying goodbye because on the way back home, the, the accident happened. And I was very close to my mom. I was, I was, you know, my mom was, I, <laughs> I always give some hard time to my sister saying that, I was my mom's favorite child. <laughs> she spoiled me enough, you know what I'm saying? My mom used to love cooking and just sit down and watch me eat. She used to call me her big boy, you know? And we had that type of connection. And once that happened, that, that hit home hard, you know, because my career, uh, uh, it was just uh, beginning. And... It was something that uh, no one is prepared for that, you know? And, and I remember I went to spring training in March. I remember I used to celebrate my mother's birthday because her birthday was March 4th. We were in the middle of spring training. And that day that it was her birthday, uh, I remember getting to the field. I got to the parking lot and I was just bawling, crying. And I just sitting down by myself in the parking lot. And uh, the whole team came out. 
and picked me up. And I remember my boy, uh, Buddy Horner. He was he was my teammate at the time. He was the first one who came and, and grabbed me. And you know, everybody was super cool. And I was in the lineup that day. And I remember I hit two homers on that game. And the first thing that came to my mind after I hit the first homer was doing that, that celebration when I got to the plate. And since that day, it was like the best feeling I ever had after I hit a home run. I bet you still miss your mother. Oh, yeah. Every day. Yep. My mother died 29 years ago last January the 6th. And uh, I still think about her, you know, all the time. That's a different love, Mr. President. That's a different love, you know. Yeah. You got your wife, you got your kid, you got your family member, you got everybody, you got friends. But the love coming from mom is, is different. That's why I always tell my kids, your love for your mom is the love for your mom. You know, it's, it's, it's something that is extremely different. That connection is different. I'm a guy that I'm surrounded by so many uh, uh, lovely people, so many people. Like, my family is based on that, spraying love everywhere. But that one type of love is, is different. More after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. 
You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Today, I am truly delighted to be joined by someone who was born and bred, and as she says, buttered in Harlem, and has played a crucial role in making the neighborhood what it is today. Someone whose mouth-watering meals have earned her the unofficial title of America's Queen of Comfort Food. Melba, thanks for being here today. When did you decide you wanted to be a chef? How old were you? Well, growing up in Harlem, every summer what we did is the day that school ended, the next day my mom, dad, brother, sister, and I would all pack into the car and we would take the 10, 11-hour drive to South Carolina which is where my parents are from. And every time, the first thing I did when we arrived in South Carolina was greeted my grandparents with warm hugs. But then it was to that farm. That's where we went. And my grandmother knew that I looked forward to going to the farm with her where we picked greens, beans, potatoes, tomatoes. And watching my grandmother gather all of these ingredients and then take them into the kitchen, singing, normally church hymns. We would cook together. And whether I was snapping peas, peeling potatoes, canning tomatoes, I loved every aspect of the magic that we created in our kitchen. It was then that I actually first fell in love with cooking, with food, and with the power of food. See, every important event in our family happened over food. It happened over a meal. Whether it was the birth of a new baby or the 100th birthday in celebrating my grandmother or my great-grandmother, whether it was a marriage or, unfortunately, a repast, I noticed that food was at the center of everything that was important to us. So I knew I wanted to be a part of the magic. I wanted to be a part of that magic called feeding people's souls, but feeding their spirits as well. Wow. You brought up a lot of old memories to me. I had uh, my grandmother's brother and his wife were sort of our family magnet when I was a little boy in Hope. And we all had to learn to shell peas and <laughs> do whatever else was necessary. I personally favored turning the crank on the ice cream machine the most because <laughs> I knew what was at the other end of that effort. Oh, yeah. But uh, I think that when you were talking about being on your grandparents' farm and how you, <clears throat> it's amazing how many people today who've never been on or around a farm, who've never planted a garden, who've never experienced this, I think sometimes they spend an unlimited number of days ordering food out and having it delivered, having <laughs> no real clue about what else is involved. And one of the things that always impressed me is that you seem to want the people who dine at your restaurants and buy your book to know that that food in front of them is part of a larger fabric of community that we should nurture and respect. That is so true. Um, you know, food was our entertainment. We come from very, very humble beginnings. 
And so it wasn't about going to the movies or taking an airplane trip any place. Food was the nucleus of everything that we did, Mr. President. So Monday through Friday, my dad worked. Saturdays and Sundays were spent at our cousin's house, my uncles, my aunts, my grandparents' homes. That's what we did. But not only did we go to visit, we brought a dish. We brought a plate. Because remember, that's bragging rights. Who makes the best tater salad? Okay, that macaroni and cheese better be creamy. And you have to see the cheese strings rise up from the plate to the top of the fork like it's going to touch the heavens and the sky. <laughs> so food is definitely, it, it was definitely a part of entertainment, but it's also a way to show love. It's a way that we nurtured each other. And it's also a vehicle, a conduit that we use to tell stories of the past. See, I never got to meet great-grandma Julia, or Mambo, as my parents affectionately called her. But every time we sat down to eat, there were stories that were constantly told about my great-grandmother, Mambo. And, you know, we shared these stories over food, and it could have been a meal that she cooked. But that's how I got to tell my son the stories of his great-great-grandmother. So even though she didn't live in the present, she lives in his mind, and he knows about his lineage. He knows the important part that she and the rest of our family members played, still today play in our lives, and he knows the reason that we do certain things. You know, I still like to shell peas because they take me back. And that's one of the beautiful things that food does. It transports you back to warm times and wonderful memories. At the Clinton Global Initiative in 2008, Matt Damon, actor, producer, and screenwriter, who channeled his passion for water security into the charity H2O Africa, bonded with Gary White, a water and sanitation engineer with years of on-the-ground expertise. Before long, they had merged their efforts into what came to be called Water.org. They later started a second organization, Water Equity, and together they've helped more than 40 3 million people gain access to clean water. Matt, when you were dreaming of a career uh, in the movies, did you know when you were young that if you succeeded, this would be a part of it? Not this specific thing, but that you had to have another mission? Yeah, that was, that was something instilled in me really uh, by, my, by my mother. Um, she took me at a, yeah, as a teenager traveling yeah, to, to Mexico, but to Guatemala and rural rural areas there where I saw things that I, I had that I'd never seen before and it, extreme poverty, political repression, you know, social injustice, all these kind of things. And it, it gave me such a better context for my own life in the world um, and, 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 and lit a fire in me to say, OK, well, you know, as 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 laser focused as I was in my 20s on on trying to carve out a career in Hollywood, which is not a, not an easy one to not an easy ring to go after. Um, I knew that if things went well, I wanted to, I, I wanted to return to this because I wanted it to be a significant part of my life because I, you know, Gary and I talk about all the time, you know, what is a life, right? It's in, you know, and how much of it is in service to this kind of greater project. And, and 
um, you know, what's a, what's a life worth living? So, um, so those were all, uh, things I, that were in the back of my mind as I was, as I was kind of slugging it out and trying to, trying to build a career in Hollywood. Lisa Leslie is currently the head coach of the triplets in the big three basketball league, who she led to the inaugural big three championship in 2019. In addition to her pioneering basketball career, which includes being the first woman to dunk at WNBA game, Lisa's resume includes fashion modeling, acting, sports commentary, and now real estate. I had the honor to meet her when I was president, and she was a member of the women's national basketball team when they won those gold medals in 1996 and in 2000. I've been a big fan ever since, and I'm so glad to be speaking with her today. Lisa, thank you for joining us. Tell us just a little about when and how you grew up and how you became interested in basketball. I grew up in Compton, California, which is the inner city of Southern California. Um, I was raised by my mom, who's a single mom uh, with two sisters, an older sister and a younger sister. I'm the middle child, therefore the best child who's most flexible, um, who gets along with everybody because I'm used to being told what to do, but I'm also used to leading and telling my younger sister what to do. So I come from very humble beginnings, um, had so much love and just positive affirmations from my mom, for my sisters and I to, you know, take on the world and do the best that we can do, be our best and do it with a lot of love and heart and integrity. But I got to tell you, I didn't start playing basketball until I was 12 years old, which is really late considering all the success that I've had in this sport. But basketball for me really was about an opportunity to create change for our lives and for me to be able to go to college. That was the whole reason why I picked up a basketball because I recognized that that was the one sport that, um, because obviously I was so tall, I was six foot in the sixth grade. (laughs) So crazy, right? I remember telling my mom that people keep asking me if I play basketball and she's like, oh, well, because you're tall, sweetheart, you know, they associate sports with people who are tall. And I was like, well, I don't want to play that. And she was like, oh, you don't have to. (laughs) So funny. Um, But I went to middle school and there was a girl named Shay. They called her Shay and everybody's like, Shay, and she's so popular. And I'm like, why does everybody know her name? And they said, well, Shay's on the basketball team. And so I think God just had that happen for me so I could go, well, I want everybody to know my name. So I tried out for the basketball team. <laughs> I guess the rest is history. It's amazing. That's how I started playing basketball. That's a great story. It's a great sport. Yes. It's it's changed my life and it's enhanced my life in ways that I would have never known through all the hard work and dedication of picking up that one basketball. Jose, let's just jump right in. How did you decide to become a chef? I I always believe in following life. Life has a plan for all of us. Sometimes we decide to listen, and sometimes we follow, and sometimes we fight it. I'm the type of guy that listens to life. And my father uh, would love to cook. Men cook in Spain. It's like uh, if you are not a chef, if you don't feed your family, if you don't feed your friends, Mm, you are not at the at the right uh, uh, social, social status. Cooking is is part of who you are. Makes you better. 
And I always saw my dad cooking at home. Obviously, my mother, who she was a great, a great cook. And I was not doing very well at school, let's say, in the traditional uh, education system. But it's not like I felt because I didn't care. I was spending more time hands-on working in restaurants around Barcelona every hour I had free than going to school. Again, the traditional education system was not something that was the best way for me to learn. And I always was trying to find other ways that I could be better. That's how I became uh, uh, um, a cook, how I became in love uh, 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 with food. But probably the moment, Mr. President, was when helping my father in one of those Sundays that he would cook for all his friends. One day we could be 20, other days we could be 100. My father will put me always in charge of the fire. And he will send me to the forest to gather the wood. And I will make a fire. And he will have this very big paella pan, a gigantic pan where we make rice dishes in Spain. And that day I wanted to cook. I didn't want to make the fire anymore. I was doing the fire for too long. See, Daddy, when I cook, my dad said, no, you have to make the fire. You are the only one that knows how to do it. It's a big paella. He sent me away because I got very upset. So we'll speak later. When the paella was made, he got me aside and he told me, my son, I understand you wanted to do the cooking, to put the, the, the spoon, to stir the pot. But actually, you were in charge of the most important which is making the fire and controlling the fire. If you control the fire, you can do any cooking you want. Control the fire and you will be in control of your destiny. I think that probably was the moment that I saw that, yes, cooking was in my future, uh, not just physically that was going to be my profession, but understanding that if we all learn and understand what our fire is, we can achieve anything we want in the world. What a wonderful story. Why Am I Telling You This is a production of iHeartRadio, the Clinton Foundation, and At Will Media. Our executive producers are Craig Manassian and Will Malnati. Our production team includes Jameson Katsufas, Tom Galton, Sarah Horowitz, and Jake Young, with production support from Liz Raftery and Josh Farnham. Original music by Watt White. Special thanks to John Sykes, John Davidson, Angel Urena, Corey Gansley, Kevin Thurm, Oscar Flores, and all our dedicated staff and partners at the Clinton Foundation. Hi, I'm Jane Park, Director of National Partnerships at Too Small to Fail, the Clinton Foundation's Early Learning Initiative. In the United States, nearly 60% of children start kindergarten unprepared lagging behind in critical language and literacy skills. Luckily, research tells us that simple, everyday interactions like talking, reading, and singing with young children from the moment they're born can help set a strong foundation for lifelong learning. That's why we're working to surround families with early language, literacy, and learning opportunities during their daily routines. From a load at the laundromat to the bus stop, the pediatrician's office to the playground, we work to meet parents where they are and help them provide their children with the best possible start in school and in life. Learn more about this work and see how you can get involved. Visit www.clintonfoundation.org podcast. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. 
I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hi, it's Bethany Frankel, and on my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, I talk to people who have had non-traditional routes to get where they are. Each episode, you'll hear from disruptors like Matthew McConaughey. And I think that day is when he goes, I was a good father to him. I raised him to have this confidence to go, I'm going my own way, I'm breaking out. Kelly Ripa. Nobody handed me anything, and I fought really hard for everything I had. And so many more. Listen to my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm excited to be back with a new season of You and Me Both. You know, when we started this podcast, we were going through some tough times, and let's face it, we still are. But I am a firm believer we're stronger together. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. Listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 